We are going on tour. The Glamorous Trash Podcast and my book tour have collabed and we're coming to a city near you. Click the link in the show notes to to get all of the deets. We're coming to New York City. On June 4th, we are kicking off an event with Jon Stewart. No big deal. That's our very first show in New York City. Then we're coming to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Chicago, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles. So get your tickets now. We are doing three different events because, you know, I'm always doing the most. That's just on brand, right? First, there's a glamorous trash party. It's the podcast meets the book tour meets Coachella, a live show featuring podcast segments, book segments, a very special guest. And of course, there's a runway walk at the end for people to show off their fits because the dress code to every event is obviously glamorous trash. We are also doing a cookie country club. It's the anti-country club country club. And it's very dreamy. You get like a bunch of products. There's little events. And it's a more intimate event where you meet other cookies and listen to a book chat with what me and another special guest and then the final event the behind the bangs writing workshop i finally did it put it together put together this workshop because i wrote this book in many ways for younger me and younger me would not have gotten off her couch unless there was also a workshop being taught i wanted the gyms i wanted i wanted the knowledge i wanted the education that's what i would have wanted so i've decided i'm doing it and in the workshop is going to be the six writing gyms that took me forever to learn 15 years in my 15 year career as a tv writer and author and blah 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 all the other things i've written there are six things that i always use and all of those are in this workshop so if you have an interest in writing sign up all the ticket links are live today click the show notes click my instagram we are coming to a city near you and there's going to be some meet and greets i'll sign some copies of books we'll give out more books and i have uh, some pieces of merch that i'm taking on the road and i'm gonna give them out at the shows Welcome to Celebrity Book Club. This is a podcast that recaps and celebrates female celebrity memoirs. I'm your host, Chelsea Devantes. I'm a TV writer, comedian, and filmmaker, and sometimes I'm in stuff too. Now, before we dive in and I tell you about today's episode, please know we recorded this months ago. It was before we were in the middle of a strike, the Writers Union and Actors Union. We are striking right now. So keep that in mind when you listen to this conversation. It was recorded a while ago, and it is such a fun conversation. This episode is about Carol Burnett's second memoir titled This Time Together, Laughter and Reflection. It was published in 2010. It is her memoir covering the span of most of her life and a follow-up to her first memoir, which was focused on her very difficult and very challenging childhood. And that first memoir takes you until she's about 26, and this memoir picks up from there. It is giving hilarious stories, great punchlines, some hot industry gas, tips and tricks for the business. This was my second time reading it, and I had a totally different impression reading it this time than I did when I read it way back in 2010. So let's get to it. What what brings you to Tara? You, you vixen, you. Stop it. I love you. That, that, that gown is gorgeous. Thank you. I saw it in the window and I just couldn't resist it. Stop it. Listen, it's Stop it. Stop it. Yes. Will you marry me? Marry you? Why, you're the scum of the ocean and the chicken of the sea. Of course I'll marry you. 
Okay, today we are discussing Carol Burnett with two guests I'm so excited for. I've been trying to have them on the podcast for years. They are currently in development with a project called The Darlings at FX, which I'm so excited for. They shot their pilot, which used to be known as Cloisterfucked. It's now known as Our Ladies with the CW. They have an amazing original play, I Heard Sex Noises at Ars Nova. They have a web series called Basic Witch that went up on Amazon Prime. They're so funny. I'm so excited to have them here. Please welcome Claire Rothrock and Ryan Weir. Hi, oh. Hey, it's so good to see you guys. I started this Zoom by saying, uh, wow, it's been a decade. And Claire said, I think it's been longer. <laughs> I just mean like we've known each other since we were like spawn. Like yeah, baby yeah, yeah. ducklings, like learning how to grow in New York City. I know. Absolutely. Because, you know, we met in college. So I was like, oh, it's been 10 years since college. No, no, it's been much longer. Um, you're right. I. We've known each other for such a long time, and I'm not sure if this is correct, but I think this podcast brought us back together, maybe? Not the podcast, but, like, DMing on Instagram. Yeah. Totally. No, 100%. I was, like, I think you were reading Jessica Simpson, and I was, like, I mean, it was, like, the throes of the pandemic, and I was, like, please, anything joyful, please. And her um, alcoholic story was really what pulled me through those first few weeks. I mean, thank you, Jessica, for this reunion. Well, I'm so, I'm so happy you guys chose Carol Burnett because uh, her other memoir is one of the first comedian memoirs I ever read. This memoir I read as soon as it came out. So what, what drew you guys to this book besides all of us being hardcore theater girls? I think it was probably that. I have to say, too, my first intro to Carol Burnett was the film musical Mm -hmm. Annie. And then I actually do know her from Mad About You. Oh! She played Helen Hunt's mom on Mad About You. I didn't really know about her variety show days and, like, the sketch show stuff. Like, I didn't know a lot of that. So, for me, I was like, I really want to know, you know? And I knew she was, like, this kind of, like theater icon person, but I just didn't know a ton about her, to be totally honest. I I also did read this like 10 years ago. I've read it once long, long ago, but I do remember yeah. it being in this kind of like Elaine Stritch, like Lucille Ball, like something about it had this uh, wholesome, old-timey fantasy version of being a young up-and-coming actor it was like yes. going between the coasts and just starting a variety show. Like there's so much optimism in it. And yeah. we could all use a little of that. <laughs> it, you're right. I mean, 10 years ago when I read it, I was like, all right, let's go, kids. You know, because she sort of gave you the idea that it was going to be okay. But I will say there's some, I'll point it out later. There were a couple of things I pulled from this book that I used in my real life, um, which is like, some of this stuff really works. What was, okay, so Ryan, since you read it uh, once before, what was your experience revisiting it? The thing I remember most from the first time that I read it was that she lived in this, like, home for girls uh, in New York City where everybody paid rent that was, like, a dollar. And I remember that part of the book so distinctly. It must have been the point I was at in my own life, that, like, in my 20s, trying to be an actor in New York, trying to make it work, um, and there, a lot of the celebrity stuff I had forgotten about of her running yeah. with all these, you know, famous people. Yeah. She dishes. She names <laughs> names. I feel the same way. The, the stuff of her living in the house of girls. Cause we, again, we, we read at the exact same point in our lives. Um, 
I What was so interesting for me is that I've always regarded this memoir as a, a memoir that really taught me a lot and like really gave me a lot. Revisiting it, I was like, oh, this is missing so much depth. 100%. Yeah, but it kind of gave me an appreciation for for like our generation, which I know sounds weird, but like she is of a generation of female comedians where you don't dish the nitty gritty. You give the facts, you give the funny, you keep it moving. Even when you're discussing like the most traumatic thing in your life, she gives us like a sentence. She moves on. I Maybe it's just her character. I also think it's kind of like, it reminds me of the Mary Tyler Moore memoir, which is also a lot like this, where it's like, uh, and then this horrible thing happened. Anyways, here's a joke about a box I put on my head. Totally. It's very anecdotal. Yeah. The whole thing is so anecdotal. Like, Yeah. It's also kind of a portal into a time when people had privacy. Like, she doesn't think yes. you deserve to know about her private life. She's like, then we yes. divorced. Moving on. That was a beautiful 40 years of marriage, but I won't tell you anything <laughs> about what happened in it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, she gives a single sentence to each husband. Oh, yeah. I like what you said. We don't deserve to know. I mean, it's 2010 where it was like, she gave us this and we were just like, thank you so much. And now <laughs> in the age of um, uh, vulnerability, I, I found myself kind of like, I was like, oh, okay, it's a, it's good, but it's not like an incredible memoir as I had in my memory. Yeah. Okay. Let's dive into her childhood. Okay. So uh, I'm going to start on page 11. So a lot of her childhood stuff was covered in her first memoir, which is, uh, and it's really great, but also it, it makes a great read for this one because you don't spend too much time in childhood at the beginning of the book, which I really like. And on page 11, she writes, Nanny, my grandmother raised me. She was my mama's mama. She is the one I pull my ear for on television still to this very day. It began as a way of saying hello and I love you. Later, it also included your check is on the way. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> I would, like went back and forth. Like I, all over this book, I was like, I loved Nanny. She, yes, Nanny. And then <laughs> occasionally I was like, the fuck? Like, oh no, Nanny. <laughs> nanny, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh Yes. And it, it's so it's like her parents um, struggled with alcoholism and uh, all kinds of other uh, mental health issues to the point that she can't be raised by them. And then as soon as she starts making money, when she's like 23, she, her sister Chris comes and lives with her. She raises her sister Chris. So when I was reading about Nanny, I was like, oh, even when Nanny's being bad, Nanny's the best we've got. Totally. Yeah, totally. totally. And Nanny's kind of cheeky. She's like a yeah. She's like a Christian scientist who's a hypochondriac and she like died in her 80s but had a 40-year-old boyfriend. She like yes. seems like a fun great character. <laughs> yes. I'm curious about Chris though because Chris does get raised by the mom. But Carol is yeah. raised by her grandma like that seemed like such a while. But again like you're you don't get any insight into a lot of this stuff. Like, you have to sort of be, like, I was like, wait, what? How do you feel about yes. your sister living with your mom? <laughs> like, And we get almost no feelings. I mean, the, the thing that kind of hit me the most about her family is that she writes a few sentences about her father's death and visiting his deathbed and any... And he has a really sweet moment with her about, like, wishing he could have done more for her. She's like, thank you. And her mom is... It, like in another chapter, she's like, my mom had died and she moved and just that's it. Yeah. We don't know right how. On. We don't know when. She never visited her. It's like, oh, that's pretty dark. Yeah. I mean. But you can only guess. Nanny feels like the conduit into which she like found the movies and like decided she wanted to be a performer. But her mom sounds like a real character, too, with this like 
the bird and the parakeet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, She she teaches teaches the bird to say, um, what is it? Oh, you pretty bastard. You pretty bastard. Yeah. I didn't know parakeets could do that. And honestly, it made me want to get a bird. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And the whiskey, like feeding the bird whiskey. And like, I was so curious about all of that. It left me really wanting, wanting to know, you know. Yeah, like she she only tells us the good things about her mom, which you can tell that means the dark side's really dark because she's obviously teaching a bird to say you pretty bastard, but um, which I love. <laughs> I just want to call out there's two animals in this book that drink whiskey. Oh, yeah. In, in a 260 page memoir, two animals drink whiskey. <laughs> it's yeah. very odd. Yeah. It's very odd. And we it's- get we get more about the animals drinking whiskey than we do about either of her parents' deaths. Yes. And more about the animals than her parents, which I will say uh, another indicator of like deep trauma, just not (laughs) coming out. I will say on, on page 21, this was the other part that really stuck with me and a part that I, um, I have a few things in common with Carol that I treasure. And this is one of them. So she said she knew she needed to get to New York to pursue musical comedy. She doesn't tell us how she got to UCLA because she's raised in LA she goes to UCLA, which is a, an incredible school. But she performs in this show. And afterwards, this man says, uh, what are your goals? You know, you were great. What are your goals? And I had said that someday I'd like to go to New York and be on stage in a musical directed by the king of Broadway, George Abbott. Parentheses, I wasn't aiming too high, meaning like she was aiming for the highest. The remarkably generous gentleman offered me enough money to fly to New York and have a little left over until I could find a job. There were four stipulations. One, I must use this money to go to New York. Two, I would pay the money back in five years, no interest. Three, if I was successful, I would help others out. Four, I must never reveal his name. He then wrote a check for $1,000. I'd never seen that many zeros in my life. This is the most beautiful moment in the book. It's so good. It's unbelievable. It made me wish for benefit, like old school benefactors. But wait, did this happen to you? So uh, not not similarly, but somewhat similar. So I have this um, I have this godmother in my life and her name's Grace. And weirdly, when Carol Burnett like later did, she later did this sitcom that I tried to write on so badly, but then the sitcom never went where she kind of plays this like anti-mame kind of crazy character. And she's always reminded me of my godmother. And so is Nanny, like kind of like these like wild women. Um, My godmother also has red hair and uh, my mom couldn't co-sign my loans. So there was no way to take out loans to even go. My godmother co-signs my loans so that I could do the stupidest thing alive and take out a million dollars that I didn't understand. But it's amazing. It's truly amazing. And then, but then like when I, I, I don't know what you guys thought, but I was like, yeah, I'll lo- school loans. You pay $25 a month every day till you die. Obviously, I'll never fully pay it back. So I'll die with some debt. But like, whatever. Like, I, that's fine. I did not realize that, like, I would get out of school and they would be like, give us $500 every month. I was like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> wait, what do you mean? <laughs> like, I, I didn't realize that. And so I kind of ruined my godmother's credit for a little while. And <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a dark part of this story. <laughs> But it's sick. I mean, I think it's sick to make anyone who wants to be an actor, like a writer, any sort of like creative arts person, to make them pay like two hundred over $200,000 a year to like get a degree is insane and then have to pay it back. Like knowing that they're just going to be waitresses for however long or whatever. It's sick. But that's incredible. 
It, it was such a gift. I mean, I, the thing is, at every stage of this career, I have been next to someone who never went to school, who only took, oh you know, the $300 improv classes. I've yeah. been to with next to college dropouts. It was just such a lie that you need certain requirements to be an artist because you really don't. You need some resources, but like you don't have to go to these schools to be an artist. And I, I really thought you had to. Oh, for totally. sure. It was also like um, education at that caliber had a kind of premium, at least in my family. Even my high school, I went to an all-girls Catholic high school. It was like you were going to college, you know, or you'd ruin their stats. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) And then once you left college, weren't you like, hello, world, discover? Like, I was shocked that people weren't clamoring to see how— smart and great and creative and wonderful I was. Like, I feel like that's part of the bill of goods you're sold. It's like, it's it's all going to happen for you, kid. And this, it kind of is what happens to her in the book over and over and over again. She keeps failing up. People keep helping her out. And maybe like when we are old and gray, those are the stories we'll most remember. We won't remember the times that were hard? Absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) I know. I mean, I walked around at NYU like an absolute clown being like, any day now, Martin Scorsese is going to be walking through the Tisch School of the Arts and he's going (laughs) to recognize something. I think very luckily I felt like such a failure in college. I knew what was coming for me, but um, what I didn't, (laughs) what I, (laughs) what I didn't expect is that like really what what helps you is just community. And yeah. so obviously college can give that to you, but like it's what Carol finds. Like she moves into this house of women who are all auditioning. And you're right, Carol has a fast rise. That being said, I do think she just won't tell us the bad stuff about anything in her life. Yeah. Um, but what my two favorite stories from the House of Women, I'm curious yours, is that they they all pull their money to get a community dress <laughs> yes, I love to this. wear to auditions. Yes. <laughs> yes. And they're like, it has to be a bright color. It has to fit all of us. So it needs long sleeves for the girls who don't want to show their arms, but it needs to like be be able to be on the petite girls and the tall girls, and they would book the dress out for auditions. I also thought um, never, I never is there a world in which five women can get together to agree on the dress that fits them all. Like, yeah, yeah. Dying for this dress. Send me the link. Add to cart. We need, yes, the true dress of the traveling pants. Like, what is this miracle? Yeah. And then the other one, the other story, what'd you guys think of this? Uh, especially when you were reading it younger. The way she gets an agent is that. I'm, I'm obsessed with this story. Yeah, 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 it's okay. She okay. So she goes to agents and they would say, Oh, we can't sign you because you're not in anything. You don't have any credits. And she says, Well, I can't be in anything and get any credits unless I have an agent. So why don't you book me in something? And they'd be like, Well, we would love to book you in something, but you have no credits. And it was a very vicious cycle. So Finally, one night when she's just feeling torn up about the career, she goes and meets this actor coming out of the stage door on Broadway. She's waiting outside the door and he comes out and she's like, hello, do you have any advice? And he says, put on your own show, make your own credits of this show that you're in and then agents can come see you and you produce the show first. And so she goes to the girls in the house and she says, let's put on our own variety show. They get a script, a producer, a director. They invite the whole town and three of the women get agents that night and Carol is one of them. Okay, tell me your thoughts on this story. Okay, I don't know if this influenced me when the first time that I read it, but I did literally do this. I, as a (laughs) 20-something, was like, okay, kids, We're all putting, it's like 
when we used to do it in the basement for our moms. We were putting on our own plays and we all make our own costumes. And I, I yes. really did feel like I had this plucky sense of like, yes, and we'll invite everyone. And the first play that I ever did was, outside of school was called First Ladies Project. And it was like a musical review, honestly, kind of in this spirit about all of America's first ladies. And okay. we sent, I love it. We sent out postcards, cold call to every agent in New York City. Zero percent came. <laughs> in a surprise to literally no one but me. Um, like, can you imagine? Oh, yes, oh, and I you can. were like, like Carol said. Like I just Carol kind of said. Thought, I, I mean, rereading this, I am like that. Maybe that's where we got the idea. Like, this will be how we'll get. Maybe we could just knock on their door and ask them politely, and then they would think that that was okay. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, yes, there was a lot about it that. I so related to like putting on your own shit. Like, I think I finally realized after school, like probably a year after school, I was like, okay, Hollywood's not coming knocking. We're going to have to do our own stuff. It's going to be weird. It's going to be in the basement of stuff, like whatever. Like this is at least better than doing nothing at all. But I do think this is how my dad thinks how like show business works too. Like, right. Right. This idea that you can like, knock on the door or like, this is forever ago. When I was just freshly out of college, my dad called me and he was like, Claire, I read an interview in the New York Times with this woman. She she sounds like she's doing exactly what you want to do. She's writing and she's funny. And I think you should give her a call and maybe she would give you a chance. And I was like, yeah, who oh. who is it? And he's like, Tina Fey. Leafing through, and it's Tina Fey. No, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, Tina Fey. And I was like, have you heard Dad, of her? I can't call Tia. Like, but I mean, I guess Carol Burnett kind of did. She like went down yeah. and she was like, hey, give me a job. Yeah. I it's- mean, also different time. I, I will say this. So, Ryan, I also did this. The theater, Second City, was hiring, tr- trying to hire women at the time. They just couldn't find them. You're like, okay, <laughs> whatever. I called my best friend, Ashley, and I was like, it's, they say they can't find the funny women. And Ashley's like, let's show them where they are. And she pitches me Carol's idea. She's like, we'll put on our own show. We'll invite this theater and agents. And I was like, oh, my God, I've read about this in Carol's book. We're going to do it. The difference was that we cast half women who had agents and were working at a theater and had those jobs. So they had, you know, networking connections. All, they already had those connections. And then we cast half women who didn't have an agent who hadn't been hired before. And so when we put on the show, all the girls who had those connections, they they made it so that people actually came to our show because people already knew them and, and agents and theaters were like, oh, I know these girls. I'll definitely come to that show. And then the girls who didn't have an agent got seen and they did all of the harder producing work. So, you know, all the all the paperwork, all the invites, getting the theater, baking the space, like all of that stuff. And so it was like a mutual, mutually beneficial deal. And then Almost every woman who did not have an agent that night got an agent. In fact, all of them might have gotten it. I'm just not totally sure, but it totally worked. Oh my um, god, she's smart, you guys. Me. Listen oh, to yeah, her. Yeah, but it was. But but we had to like you know kind of like trick them, and then and then we passed the show on. So the women who had agents would kind of move to the rung. Then they would cast five women who don't have agents, and they would do the show like every oh, six months. This That's is amazing. Yeah. It was just like, oh yeah, it is really good advice, although. It is way harder than Carol wrote about. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. There is a sort of gumption to it 
Yeah. Yeah. Gumption is such a good word for this book. Okay, so let's get to the next era of gumption then. So first, real quick, I want to read on page 40. She's talking about how she's like doing this uh, Broadway show. She does get in a George Abbott show, which is wild. And then she's leaving the show and she says, another door closed around this time as well. After four years of marriage, Don and I parted and he returned to California. I said, who the fuck is Don? She said, no arguments. We were simply leading parallel lives, so we agreed to separate. Not long after that, we divorced. I was like, excuse me? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I'm sorry, what? I know we've skipped over her marrying Don. At one point, she is like, Don and I married quietly. I was devastated for, like, you particularly, Chelsea, and us in general. There's, like, nothing about the weddings, no Nothing. pictures of the dresses, like just, he, he, she no gives pictures up, of the husbands. N- Nothing. Not, Nothing. 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 We get one picture of Brian at the end. Oh, which did I, I missed Brian. Yes. work. Brian's kind of, he's the big ender and I'm excited to get to him, but yeah, yeah. yeah, this, it was like, Oh, I married Don, my college sweetheart. We don't know anything about him. Then he's gone. The divorce sounds like they lost touch. Like that <laughs> yeah. seems unbelievable. <laughs> Yeah. They lost his address, so I guess we divorced. You're like, okay. Um, There's yeah, also a wild. part where she, she talks really briefly about, she's like, Don followed me to New York. One rainy night, all my girlfriends had dates, and I was sitting at home alone. I'm like, aren't you married, or don't you have a boyfriend? Isn't he around? Why aren't you with your boyfriend? <laughs> also, like, you're in the lady house, but, like, when do you not be in the lady house? In my yeah. head, she was just always there. Yeah, it's very... <laughs> So much missing. And then and then she tells us these really funny stories. So here's here's one of my favorite ones where she goes to a restaurant. It's a nice restaurant. And she gets screamed at by the hostess where she's like, women aren't allowed to wear pants. Like, you can't come in this restaurant. You're wearing pants. You're a monster. Monster. Carol really wants to go to her dinner reservation. So she pretends she has a wooden leg. <laughs> starts dragging her leg across the floor. It's like, I'm sorry. I have a wooden leg. I'm too embarrassed to wear a skirt. And then the hostess is ashamed. And Carol the whole night, like, has to drag her leg to the table, then drag her leg. And I was like, you're a true comedic genius. I, like, really relate to her um, kind of sense of vengeance. Like, yes. Her, I, she also gets fired from a job at one point where she, and then she places her Hollywood Walk of Fame star, like, right in front of the theater that fired her or whatever. Do you have a petty, do either of you have a petty fantasy where you're like, one day this is my, this is my petty dream? It's not petty, but it's something Claire and I talk about all the time. The first show that we ever pitched, we were so excited. They put us up in the Sofitel in LA, which looks like, as Claire describes it, a Von Dutch hat exploded inside of a hotel. (laughs) And it's full of just like wacky, wacky art. And there's one big piece that's a lion's head and it just says king on it. And every day, Claire and I were like, someday when we hit it big, we're going to use our millions to buy king for each other. <laughs> like just to be able to buy oh. a schlocky hotel piece of art in this like place that we tra- tried to make our first dreams happen. Um, I love that's a good dream. I'm currently having petty fantasies of I don't know if I'll do it. But I'm having this fantasy that when my book is published, I'll I'll send it. I'll send a care package of it to. There's three addresses I have in mind. Yeah, <laughs> where like yeah, yeah, one yeah. day they're gonna go to the front door and open this book I wrote and mm. find themselves I in it. Really support um, this. Yes. Um. Okay. So lots of little stories like this. Then 
I I really we have to dive into that this because on this podcast we often talk about husbanders, uh, an insecure <laughs> loser who basically becomes a barnacle or like a succubus on a talented woman and attempts to ruin her life while managing her career. <laughs> now I. I'm sad to do this, but I'm going to, I now realize I need to create like another subsection, like a subreddit for husbanders, which is because reading this book, it finally crystallized. Carol Burnett has, so her second husband who was like, she's like, uh, I worked on the show. This guy, Mike was a producer. I'll later marry him. You're like, okay. (laughs) Then we're sort of like in this moment where, um, she is, she's like an actress on a sketch show and her husband Mike he's not her manager but he is in the industry and he kind of is a husbander I'm realizing he very smartly had built into her contract for the Gary sketch show that she would get to headline her own solo episodes that like Carol would get 10 episodes of something and it's just like hidden in the contract so she's on the Gary Moore show never has pulled the plug to get her own show until things get so dire to me that whole story yeah yeah it's like, wait, I'm sorry. Why were you sitting on this? So she's basically like, I, you know, my fame was dwindling. I wasn't in Broadway shows as much anymore. You know, Gary show was good, but it wasn't doing a lot for me. It came time to push the button. So it was almost seemed like it was like, of course, Carol's not going to have her own show unless she really has to. So she has Mike call and they're like, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to push the button. You got to give Carol her own show. And they're like, um, what do you mean? We were just kidding about that. Call some lawyers. I don't think we meant that. And her husband is basically like, yes, you did. It's in the contract. You're giving her her own goddamn show. They say to her, well, yes, I can see why you called. But really, I don't think the hour thing is the best way to go. Comedy variety shows are traditionally hosted by men. Gleason, Caesar, Benny, Burl, and now Dean. It's not really for a gal. Uh, Dinah's show was mostly music. This isn't for Carol. And they're like, well, you put it in the contract, so you're going to do it. And they... Uh, they book her show. They're like, we have to give these 10 episodes, then it's going away. And then... She says, uh, we didn't expect much longer either. Happily, though, we fooled ourselves and CBS. We were to run for 11 wonderful seasons, Um, which I adore. But it brings me to this point where she always had, like, when men pushed back to her on the phone, she would put Mike on the phone and Mike would handle it. Mike would handle everything. And then it reminds me of Mary Tyler Moore's book where she marries a TV uh, network head and he kind of like does the the men's elbow grease to get her the Mary Tyler Moore show and sort of stand by her and like co-sign that Mary should exist. And Desi Arnaz does it with Lucille Ball. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, oh, they all had to have husbands who were all in the business who would wear the pants in for them because they weren't they still weren't allowed to. So even when we look back on these women and it made me be like, oh no, there was this kind of subsect of good husbanders who are the only reason we had female comedians in this era. Totally. I also have to say, I think it is very telling that of how kind of little she talks about her husband, that you've called him Mike and his name is actually, in fact, Joe. <laughs> I can't believe his name is Joe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're right. In my defense, he has three just sentences in the book and they're yeah, all yeah, like, yeah. I put him on the phone. But yeah, Mike, you're right. Mike was Mike, is Mike was the head of CBS and Joe is the husband. He also he yeah, he like protected her career, father of her three children, were married most of their life, gets zero mention in the book. You're so right. And it does kind of make you like and I only kudos to this, but it's like 
did these women who wanted more in life realize they needed a Mike or a Joe? One of them, you know, either or Mike or a Joe, any of them will do. I'm sure a Chad and Andrew, whatever. Realize they needed a Mike or a Joe of some sort, either or. Yeah. And, and you know, find more love for them than they might have had they never needed them to to be a comedian. In which case, again, props, but. Totally. I mean, the way I'm, Lucille Ball describes Desi and the kind of like longing that that she has for the way he defended her and what had to happen to her afterwards. I think that's my favorite part of the book is like Lucy, their friendship. Let's read. Yeah. Yeah. Let's read some of it. Okay. So Lucille Ball comes to see Carol one night and thinks she's fantastic. Comes backstage. She's like, you are amazing. I will. I am your friend. I'm here. You call me whenever you need me and I will show up for you. And don't you forget it. So beautiful. It's like, what a gift. So can then I say, wait, later, what, can I interrupt for one yeah. second? She also does this one thing where she comes and sits on, on um, Carol Burnett's couch and Carol Burnett can see that in this shitty couch in a green room in a theater, a screw is sticking out of the couch. And Lucy just looks at it and is like, I see it. Yeah. <laughs> don't worry. I see it. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I loved that too. And, and so then when Carol has her show, they're like, you need a really big movie star to kind of help launch your show. She's afraid to call Lucy. Like, will she be pushy? But she calls her and Lucy said, I told you I'd be there and now I'm coming. And it leads them to performing a lot together and having this amazing friendship. I want to read a couple of paragraphs from their friendship chapters. She says, after the special, Lucy and I were in touch often. And I was thrilled when she asked me to be a guest on Here's Lucy and the Lucy Show, which came after I Love Lucy. Lucille Ball had a reputation for being tough. There were times on set she'd say things to someone on the crew or to the writers that could have been considered blunt, to say the least, but she was always right. She never censored her opinions or couched them euphemistically. She called it the way she saw it. If she didn't like something, she let you know. And if she did like something, she was as complimentary as could be. That's why the crew and staff loved her. She was honest, and none of the criticism was ever personal. In those days, though, it was unheard of for a woman to run a show, let alone, quote, like a man. And so then she gets this reputation for being, like, tough. Oh, didn't it make you burn with anger? Uh, yes. It really made—it was so infuriating. And I have to say, I mean, I feel like Ryan and I have been so lucky. We've actually had the opportunity of working for a lot of, like, female showrunners and working with, like, women directors. And our mentors have been really amazing to us. And literally every single time, every single time we work with a woman— inevitably someone is like, oh, she's a bitch. Of course. And it just, it really floors me every single time it happens because these women are incredible. I mean, like inevitably somebody calls them a bitch. It's wild to me. Always seen as a weakness instead of a positive, which yeah, it's wild, especially because we think we've come so far and we have not. Have you guys seen it happen to yourselves yet where becoming more successful, getting to do your own stuff. Have you seen people change how they treat you? It's easier in a way, since there are two of us, we can kind of be good cop and bad cop sometimes, which does feel like it makes it slightly easier. If somebody has to be more assertive, the other one can kind of soften it, which is ridiculous that we would even have to consider that. But I also feel like more recently, Claire and I have been thinking we can we can step into that role more, but it's going to take 
a conscious effort for us to, in the moment, be as assertive as we would be when we relitigate the call an hour later. You know what I mean? That's such a good point. I also, um, I used to have a, a partner and it is such a gift to have a female partner with you in this career. And I just, I want you guys to like, hold on to it and seeing you together. I'm like so thrilled, but like still being a woman, it's that sad thing where there's power in numbers. There's power in numbers when you're walking home at night. There's power in numbers when you're getting on a call where they're (laughs) going to call you, hey girl, you know, and you got to stand up for yourself and like, absolutely. And, And I've, uh, I've, I've definitely seen it happen to myself. Like yeah. it's, it's Actually, wild what happens. Having said that there are a couple of times where we have been like, we're not doing that. And one time we got fired <laughs> Basically, <laughs> for real. Like one time they were like, the consequences are, you got to live with them. When you step up yes. into the big girl pants and say, and, and throw shit down, people react. Yeah. Sometimes in a good way. Yeah. Shit gets real in the community Sh- dress. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I will. I will say, like, I think also having been an acting at acting school, I think in acting school, too, you're like taught or at least this is how I felt. I I felt like I was taught to be polite and what everyone wanted, you know, so I felt like coming out of school, a lot of my I, I like was a people pleaser and I really wanted like I, you know, I was like tall and funny and whatever. And so I really wanted to like please everyone and and look small so I could play the role next to the short boy. We have this in common, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But I think I I worked for Leslie Hedlund for a while, who's who's been like an awesome mentor of Ryan and I's and and I watched her be totally herself. And I was like, oh, I wasn't ever I was never really taught that to be myself and to kind of live in that full capacity. And I think that has been a lesson. I mean, like, it feels like that's kind of what Lucy is saying, like in this moment, it's like, yeah, you have to like step into being the boss and being yourself. And do you want it to be good or do you want it to be nice? You know, that is, ah, I need that as a bumper sticker. Um, I, (laughs) I will. I love the Lucy story too because she she and Desi really really loved each other and but they part ways and she says that like um, she says I knew I had to turn into Desi, be fearless or there would be no show. And then Carol said that she would let Lucy would send her flowers every year on her birthday. And so the last sentence of the chapter is I miss her. She died early on the morning of my birthday in 1989, and I got my flowers in the card from her that afternoon. That's insane. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, okay, so Carol has no like psychic medium moment where she like goes to see a medium, which I know is like a huge thread in like celebrity memoirs, but she is incredibly like superstitious and wiggy about stuff. And this felt like one of those moments, you know? I agree. Okay, this feels like a good time to take a quick break. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondry's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Balasai. 
Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life, and I can't believe it, but I got to write my own, and it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. The book, you know, I was asked to describe it, and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing, traumatic memoir, but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup. How I got my break into Hollywood. When I found out my dad was not my real dad. The time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah. Growing up around cults. How I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes. Some are motherfucking villains, but you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role, and we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book, it matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes, but you know, go anywhere. Also, I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre-sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much. Okay, welcome back. Let's continue the conversation. And I will say, even though there's no classic call up a psychic moment, she ends the book asking for signs. And she says, oh, yeah. So and we'll get to but she asks for signs that she's supposed to do something. And she starts writing about all the signs she's receiving and realizing she should do this show. And I was like, this is this is our psychic moment. Totally. Anytime you ask for a sign, you know what I mean? We're, we're getting psychic. There also is a leprechaun. Oh, my God. The leprechaun. <laughs> There's a leprechaun moment which feels psychic adjacent. <laughs> will you will you tell us what that is, Ryan? Yes, who is the famous person? It's like Carol Channing or something. They're in the middle of a lawsuit. Um, Carol Burnett is suing the Inquirer because they called her an alcoholic or said she was drunk at a restaurant or something. And again, this is like a, a time capsule of privacy, of someone suing the Inquirer because they said... Like, they got a little loose at a lunch. You know she, what I mean? Yeah, she said uh, Carol was crazy at dinner and poured alcohol down people's throats, and she sued them for years. <laughs> yeah. Barbara, Barbara Stanwyck, like, sees her at the doctor's office, and she's like, you're going to whip the inquirer's ass. And Carol, like, laughs, and she's like, yeah, from your lips or whatever. And she's like, no, look, I'm not making this up or wishing you the best here. Get it? I'm telling you, I know you're going to win this case. And then she leans forward and almost whispers in my ear. She said, my leprechaun told me. (laughs) And then she does. She whips the inquirer's ass. The leprechaun knew. That leprechaun knew, baby. You're right. That's another good psychic moment. There are some moments that feel like such New York moments and some moments that feel such L.A. But like a woman in a doctor's office telling you her leprechaun told her it was going to happen feels like an LA moment like that, yes, that and is distinctly LA Joan Crawford exchange also I think it's like okay yes 
a bi-coastal woman with all of her wild people. <laughs> the Joan Crawford one is another great little story, too, where basically Joan Crawford writes Carol a nice note. It's like four sentences. Carol writes a nice note back. Joan Crawford writes back. Carol writes back again. And these they're not deep. So it's just like, and then it's basically the equivalent of texting, but through telegrams. And Carol is like, I don't know what to do. She just keeps writing me. But every time I write her and end it, she keeps writing me back. So one day she's like, I'm just not going to write Joan Crawford back. I'm just not going to do it. I have to stop. I have to stop. And then she runs into her at a restaurant. She's like, oh, no. And Joan waves. And Carol waves. Then Joan waves. And then Carol waves. And Carol's like, I don't know when it's going to stop. <laughs> she blows her kiss. She blows her kiss. And it, it just is this like, oh, Joan Crawford just like didn't know when to end a moment. <laughs> yeah. Joan couldn't give it up. <laughs> it was incredible. Um, another two other little tiny stories before we get to Julie Andrews is, um, this like high school kid writes Carol and she's like, I'm going to be a comedian. Everyone says they look like you. It's this girl named Vicky. And so Carol read the letter, saw the picture, knew she needed a daughter in her show, calls up Vicky and she's like, are you in anything? And she's like, I'm in this like little pageant tonight. And Carol, who's hugely famous at that point and pregnant, goes and sees her and later casts her in her show um, and Vicky's a part of it for like a decade. It was devastating to not see Vicky get wildly famous, but um, it's I it, know it was also, yeah, it was this nice moment too, though, of like those little magical moments still do happen. You know what yeah, I mean? Like people, yeah. not all the time, but sometimes, like you really can reach out and someone will read it. It reminded me of your like getting hired off an open call or whatever it is. Uh, the Things like that really pull me through because I'm like, maybe, you know, it could happen or whatever. <laughs> like, Yeah, I, I've definitely had magical moments. It's funny because they're against a backdrop of one million nightmares. Yeah, <laughs> So totally. it's like, it's like, can you live through one million nightmares? And I don't know. I definitely couldn't do it again. It's, yeah, it's so, it is, it is right. That's exactly the best way to put it. It feels like a piece of magic. I mean, the fact that they hired her after that, I just think is like wild and amazing and beautiful, but yeah. yeah. And she doesn't crush it. She gets her moment and is like, okay. And Carol sticks with her for years. I mean, it was, it was very special. And then, and then she talked about how she always loved being the second banana. And I said, is that my memoir title? <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. And uh, oh yeah, the God. second banana sort of being like the funny, funny little friend, you know, or just like the, the gal to the side. I'm the second banana. I was like, oh, I love it so much. And then she becomes Julie Andrews' best friend. And what I I love when this happens in memoirs, when uh, Carol is all over Julie's memoir and Julie oh, is all over Carol's memoir. And when you so can great. when you can find friends in each other's memoirs. Yeah. I'm obsessed um, with this whole I mean, huge. I'm a huge Julie Andrews stan. Um, so I love, I love all of this. And the way they just like hit it off. Just like What was your favorite little moment of them? I, I feel like the story of how they got the Julie Andrews, um, how they got the Julie Andrews special at CBS is like one of the weirdest stories I've ever heard. Will you recap it a little yeah, for the so, cookies? So at this point, they're buddies. And Julie Andrews, I think, is like kind of a Broadway hit, but she's like, no one west of New Jersey knows who she is or whatever. And Carol, meanwhile, is sort of like a big 
like TV star, but they really want to do this like big Carnegie Hall special and they want CBS to do it. And CBS keeps saying no, because they're like, no one knows who Julie Andrews is and like whatever. And then I think they're at a, they're at a Christmas party. Like, oh yeah. And at this point, like husband or husband or Joe keeps coming in to try and convince CBS to do it. And they keep saying no. And then She's like, it's a rainy afternoon. They were all at a party or a luncheon or something. Um, And she brings it up again. She like is like, you know, maybe they should do this special. And they keep saying no. And she's like, well, maybe I'll take it over to my chums at NBC. And they're like still not having it. And she says it's pouring rain when they get when they get out of this lunch and she said, when the lunch was over, we all rode down in the elevator to get together. Outside on Madison Avenue, it was raining like crazy. And Oscar offered to help me hail a cab. And none, no cabs come. And so she says, thanking him, I said, oh, don't worry. You go on. Somebody in a truck will pull up and I'll hitch a ride. I'd barely gotten those words out of my mouth when a huge beer truck stopped in front of us at the curb and a burly tattooed driver leaned across the seat and yelled out the passenger window, hey, Carol, me and the missus watch you all the time on Gary. Do you need a lift? And so she ends up getting in the truck with this dude. He takes her home. And when she gets home, the phone is ringing and it's the CBS guys. And they're like, that's the most insane thing we've ever seen. And it felt like an omen. So I guess you and Julie can do your show. <laughs> yeah. And also just like a sign of how famous she was that like pe- someone would pull over in the rain to give her a ride. Again, so psychic. And yeah. And, th- and then she and Julie get to do three Carnegie Hall specials. And then she says, I wish I'd gotten the name of that truck driver. Also, I was so floored that an exec was like, well, it felt like an omen. <laughs> so I guess we yeah. got to oh do God. it. Can you imagine? Yeah. A different time. A, a different, different time. time. Yeah. I, I, uh, I loved that so much too. I also love that. So in our Julie Andrews episode, you can hear some, some different Carol stories that are not in this book, uh, but it, like she writes, Julie Andrews is very body, which is it's Julie Andrews Ugh. hidden side, but it comes out with Carol. Like they pretend to make out in an elevator and the For doors open. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I really, really love their friendship. Um, it's, it feels very, very special. I was just going to say, I love the way it's like so basic. Like their friendship is so like sweet. Like she has her like shitty hair day and Julie is very like, girlfriends, you know. Yeah, you can see it's like a true, true love best friendship. Like some best friendships are true love and like there's this true love. The hairdo moment was one I felt, I have to say, very particularly seen by, which is just like, they're about to do a show at like Lincoln Center or somewhere amazing together. And the night before the show, Carol's like, you know, I should probably dye my hair by myself. I should have blonde highlights. This to me is like, a, a recurring theme in my life. I'm like, it's the pandemic. <laughs> I'll make my own bangs. Nothing can go wrong. You know what I mean? Yep. And that, and she also had another moment where she's like, I didn't have a chin and I got a big job and I bought myself a chin. I was like, whoa, there, there isn't a ton of body stuff in, in the book, but the hair stuff and the chin stuff to me felt very relatable. It's like, 
She's just a girl with no chin trying to dye her hair all the time. You yeah. Know? Also, I really loved, I really loved that there was no physical stuff in the book because she talks about how she was the ugly duckling, tall, weirdo girl. And obviously in a time when that wasn't wanted, desired, exalted, and nor is it now. And, um, <laughs> And, and just becomes wildly successful. And I really liked that she, there was just nothing given to it because it had no merit other than these little, so you know she went through her own things getting a chin or whatever, but yeah. I loved it. Um, okay, then I can, I honestly cannot believe this. Henry Kissinger has come up a lot. I can't believe this fucking man is coming up so much. I just can't believe it. He's, he's officially outdone Mick Jagger for cameos in female celebrity <laughs> memoirs. Again, war criminal Harry Kissinger, page 200, get out your celebrity book club, drinking bingo. She talks about Henry Kissinger. Oh, that, this is the National Enquirer story. Yeah, they wrote yeah. this story that she'd been ropping around drunk Anna and wound up in a fight with Henry Kissinger. The whole story was made up except for the fact that Dr. Kissinger and I happened to be dining there the same evening at separate tables. And uh, anyways, I'm just so mad this man's in books. Like, honestly, <laughs> if you're listening to this and you know why this is, call in, e find the email, DM me, yes. somebody, please why, explain why? to me why Henry Kissinger <laughs> is in at least 12 female celebrity memoirs. There were so many stories in this book that afterwards I wrote, like, is this a story? Is this a story yeah. that should end up in a book? <laughs> like, Yes. Every chapter is two to three pages long. Like, even some of the stuff where it's like, Laurence Olivier once rented my house. And that's kind of the yeah. whole story. And and you know she had dinner with him, and she gives us nothing from the dinner. No, totally. I know. The stories kind of fall under one of two categories. One is like, I'm famous, and I knew famous people. And the other one is like, I stepped in a bucket, and everyone thought, what a klutz. Like, those are kind of the two <laughs> templates, you know? That is yeah. perfectly said. That Which is exactly I, this book. I love for her. What a life. What? Truly. Um, okay, so speaking of her writing style, this is how page 213 ends. She's talking about the, the her show, her variety show, finally ending. It's the closing night, the last show, all these things. Then, then the last two sentences. <laughs> We all had a blast of a party that night. Laughter and tears flowed like champagne. So did the champagne. Several years later, sadly, Joe and I parted. The marriage was over, but we would always be friends. He died in 1991 after a long and brave struggle with cancer. This okay, is the book gone. in a nutshell. <laughs> Ice cold. Or like not for your consideration. I, I can't tell. Either she hated these men in her life and like, or, or like barely met them. Or... She's just like, or it's like, is, I'm not going to dish. I'm not, yeah. you don't deserve the juice. This belongs to I, me and not to you, which I also respect. I mean, it, we got her divorce and his death in back-to-back <laughs> sentences. That's and the end of crazy. Show, her like long-running yes. sitcom ends. She divorces this guy and he dies. Animals like, drinking liquor took up more real estate than that. For yes, yeah. yes. And I, I do think there is something, this is kind of that, that theory I was saying earlier where he was tied to her show. Like a part of their love was that he helped make her dreams and her life came true. And when that show ended, this love also ended. Um, yeah. And I, I, though I can't relate to that with a male partner, I can certainly relate to like 
projects or jobs where like doing doing the job, doing the work, like creates this incredible friendship. And when the work is gone, you realize the engine of the friendship was the work. It wasn't the friendship itself. This is like, I think something that Betty Gilpin talks about in her book that's like so, she talks about it so well, which is like the idea of like the way that you fall in love with people when you're on a job and then and you're so close and you like love them so much and then the job will end and you'll like maybe never see them again or whatever. But, you know, that was your best friend and you saw them for 16 hours a day or whatever it was. Yeah. 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 I mean, I guess that was her husband. <laughs> I, I, okay. <laughs> um, okay. So then yeah. a heartbreaking section about this young girl named Kathy and oh I mean, this is a, this is real psychic moment stuff where basically she gets a call that there's a young girl with cancer named Kathy and like her dying wishes to meet Carol. When Carol comes to the hospital, Kathy's dying of cancer. And her mom is like, when Kathy was little, she would point at the TV screen every time you came on and she would say, that woman's my friend. Like that, I know that woman, that woman's my friend. And Carol is like, I feel it too. Like something compelled me here. Like I am Kathy's friend. Like I meant to know Kathy. And Carol comes to the hospital every second of every moment she can. And then she can't go for a little while. And then the whole night she's awake thinking of Kathy. And she's like telling Kathy to hang on. And she runs over on this like two hour break from shooting to be at the hospital. But she has to leave at one o'clock. She's there for these two hours. And at one o'clock, Kathy dies. Uh, this was, I'm, I'm kind of speaking through it a little fast because it was actually um, so hard to get through. But um, yeah, just she just had this this incredible spiritual relationship with this little girl who also like felt like she knew her. This is also kind of how the book starts, weirdly. Like she has this, like she, she talks at the beginning about how she feels like she has this connection with Jimmy Stewart. I wondered if there was, like, a through line here or something. But she talks about how she had a connection with Jimmy Stewart. And then she met Jimmy Stewart. And they became really, like, lifelong friends or whatever. I found this part of the book so, like, I think it was, parts of it were so moving. And then also part of it, I was like, oh, I I don't know. It, It, like, really kind of rides the line, I think. I think it's also the, it's like every chapter in the book is, like, a, a quippy and a dippy and a twist and a turn and like every little you know every every ending her endings are fantastic she ends on a joke and a twist this is the most emotional part of the book it's about this little girl who we've never met we'll, ne- we'll never hear from and it, it's like one of the longest chapters it's the only time she gets emotional but like that the book hasn't done that and it doesn't do it afterwards and so you're just sort of like on edge you know yeah what also really drew me the story that that another heartbreak is that she has three daughters and one of her daughters, Carrie, struggles with drug use and goes to rehab. And it's this whole part of her like teenage years where like Carol has to get her into her third rehab and like help Carrie. And Carrie becomes an artist, the only daughter that like like starts following Carol's footsteps. And she calls her mom up one day and she says, let's turn your first memoir into a play just for us, like just for us to do something for fun together and go through your childhood. And they do it. And then the play takes off and, and it, and it's going to get this Broadway run and Carrie gets cancer. I know. And this, the way it's written is so tough because C- Carrie, Carrie dies. Carol asks for signs. She performs the play for Carrie. You don't get a lot of depth into it, but you can also feel that it's the worst thing that ever happened to her. 
Yeah, there's like one line where she's like, I couldn't get out of bed or whatever. I mean, maybe this is like sick of me, but I was like, I want to, I wanted to know more about these like darker moments because it was so humanizing of her in a way. Yeah. And no, you know, yeah, I, I, think I completely agree. The funniest people are also the people with, who like hold the most tragedy or like, you know. Yeah. And yeah, because yeah. her childhood is tragic. She yeah. she has a tragic trauma-filled childhood before she launches this career. It's just not a part of this book. And then to have to go through so much still, yeah, it's a lot. But more is written about Kathy um, yes. than Carrie, which I think was also indicative of, like, it was too painful to write about. Totally. Yeah. Like her we daughter, get- or maybe she was writing about her daughter through Kathy. Maybe Kathy was, like, a premonition of what was going to happen to Carrie or something. I wonder if she, like, sees in the rear view that, I don't know. Yeah, that is, that's a really eerie, it's, like, eerie and beautiful. That I, I really wonder about that now, too. It's so hard to tell. Okay, now <laughs> let's all brace ourselves, everyone listening, everyone in this podcast. We're going to take a hard pivot, okay? We're, we're pivoting to go to the next topic, <laughs> which is that we get a whole chapter called Mr. Computer about how she learns to get a computer because she couldn't type her book up with a typewriter because she would cut out the sentences and move and paste them around by hand. Finally gets Mr. Computer. So funny. Then I will tell you, I have not laughed this hard reading a memoir that of a single joke in a comedian's female memoir. This I think is going to be my all time favorite. She said, Another time I was in Texas and a woman in the balcony asked me the weirdest question ever. She must have been working on it for a long time. Carol, if you could be a member of the opposite sex for 24 hours and then pop back and be yourself again, who would you be and what would you do? My mind started racing like mad. Opposite sex for 24 hours? Who would I be? What would I do? I said a quick little prayer. Please let me open my mouth and have whatever comes out make sense. I took a deep breath and what came out was this. I'd be Osama bin Laden and I'd kill myself. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I circled it I in the so- book and just wrote, what? You're, I just, you're not expecting it in the book. You're not expecting it from her. <laughs> also, this is like the only mention that this has happened post 9-11. <laughs> totally. We're sort of like lost in time here. Yeah. And she is so hunky-dory. <laughs> You could be in the 60s or 70s or 80s or 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. That's part of the surprise that you do not know that, that we're post 9-11 at this talk back. I know. Uh, I, I, like, I like picked up the book and ran into my husband's office and I was like, you have to listen to this. <laughs> um, and then we're getting to the end. It's a chapter titled Brian. Brian gets Full- the most typeface man of any and husband. I get it Cur- current husband current yeah, husband yeah, gets the true. most typeface important he has a they have the full portrait together not their wedding portrait or maybe if they didn't wear wedding clothes at their wedding um I love this so much so they're currently married till this day he is 20 years younger than her oh you okay <laughs> good I'm glad you looked it up because I was like yes Brian yes and and she Third husband, just like Nanny, starts dating a younger guy, just like Mary Tyler Moore starts dating a younger guy. Like, basically, these women who are just, like, so incredibly powerful and, like, the only man who can, like, stand in the heat is, like, this uh, young dude who's, like, (laughs) you know. um, 
yeah. or, or, you know, whatever. I, that, that was just me making a joke. But like, I, lo- I love that they're together. I love that he's a younger man. And she writes this. She said, Brian and I tied the knot in November 2001. It rained that day because she sees storms as good luck. Like when she got her show at Carnegie Hall. And she said, uh, in addition to his work as a drummer, Brian is one of the Los Angeles' busiest contractors of musicians for theater and live events. And he also acts as a personal manager for one of the city's resident orchestras, all of which keeps him pretty busy. He's brilliantly funny and makes me laugh constantly. What's most important is that I feel safe with him. He's a loving human being and my very best friend. A side note, we're both a lot like Felix Unger, the neat Nick and the odd couple. There are even times when we come close to arm wrestling over the Windex bottle. So most details on a husband, I think pretty potently as a, as a note to the previous husbands, she said, most important is that I feel safe with him. Yeah. What subtext? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just made me wonder about all the other ones. Like I, 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 I didn't really know how to take that, I guess. I feel yeah. like it has a strong implication behind it. I do as well. Uh, and I will say to make Carol laugh, you got to be a hell of a guy. So I, I was a fan of Brian. Yeah. Totally. Also, yeah. I, I love that she also kind of like pitches him. She's like, hey, to anyone looking to hire a drummer. Or, like, yeah. Totally. That's how that whole part felt. It was like. No. Okay. You know what it felt like to me, though, is that he's not he's not leeching off my fame and money. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. I feel like. Right. Yeah. I feel like yeah. powerful women have to sort of prove that the young hot guy into them. Now I'm not calling Brian hot, <laughs> but I'm saying, <laughs> but I like, am. yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> but they have to be like, he is here for me. I think she's been like, he has his own life. He's not here to take my money. Um, okay. So, um, at the end of the book, I really love this part. I'm going to read. And then as I read, get ready. Cause I'm going to ask you guys a question. Okay. She says, She says, I've had a great run. I've had the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, both professionally and personally. When I need inspiration, I think of Beverly Sills and do my best to emulate her, to concentrate on all the wonderful times I've had and continue to have living my dreams to the fullest. My dear friend Mitzi Welch told me that when she's going to sleep every night, she counts at least three gratefuls for the day she just lived through. It's a pretty good idea. I'm happily married to Brian, for which I count a grateful every day. I lost my beautiful Carrie, yet I was blessed to have her light in my life. I feel her presence daily, and for that I count a grateful too. My Jody and Aaron are loving and beautiful inside out. Two more gratefuls. And she continues to list these gratefuls as she ends the book. Uh, And she said, So I add my gratefuls that my time happened when it did, and I'm grateful I can look back and say once more, I'm so glad we had this time together. Um, which is the title of her book this time together. So I love, so I'm absolutely, I've been given the grateful advice in different ways, but this was the time it like crystallized in my brain of three gratefuls. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, my question for you guys is when you read that, did you also say like, oh, I need to do this. I need my three gratefuls. Oh my God, a hundred percent. It's just easy to get down in the world. You know what I mean? So just to remind yourself, we all have a lot. To, we do all have a lot to be grateful for, but it's, I think it is, on a cellular level, important to take stock of that every day. Yes. Same here. I thought it ended really beautifully. Um, Okay. We end every podcast with what I call the book dull test. Three (laughs) questions. First question is, was the author vulnerable? Did she share her truth? 
Hmm. I don't know how vulnerable she was, but I do feel she shared her truth. Yes, I think she shared the truth. She was not vulnerable. I do think she has way more to give, but I don't think she would ever want to give it. And I respect that. Totally. Yeah, props. Okay, second question. Was it entertaining to read? Yes, 100%. Extremely. It's so funny. It's so fast-paced. It's it's a fantastic read. Okay, last question. Did reading this book elevate your life in some way? I do think yes. I think it's a reminder. At this very moment. Yes. I I, I think both Claire and I needed a reminder that it's like, give it a shot, kid. What's the worst that could happen? You know, like (laughs) this plucky optimism that she just over and over and over again tries and succeeds. It's nice to hear a story about people who try and succeed. You know, it's nice to feel hopeful. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is. No, you're right. You're so right. I also say on this podcast all the time that like the right book finds you at the right moment. I just fully believe that. Um, I, too, needed gumption badly. Like, it's just like even when you get great things, you get so many bad things. And like to withstand them is just an art form of its own. And and I will say when I first read this book, a thousand percent did it elevate my life. Like this book, like really, I think launched me into my time as a comedian with a, a, a gumption, you know, and a belief <laughs> in the impossible because the impossible happens in this book. Um, upon revisiting it, I, it changed for me, but I, the three gratefuls thing really sticks with me. And also, also, uh, I had never fully processed that Bob Mackey is the one who came up with the famous curtain dress. I thought that was a joke written into the sketch. And really it was his own, like they had written that she makes a dress out of curtains as she's in the sketch for Scarlett O'Hara. And he made the curtain rod a part of the dress. And um, it sort of gave me this extra, like, I don't know, like being extra and being Bob Mackie and being covered in sequins. And like, it it weirdly gave me this like beautiful uh, appreciation for like things outside of standard comedian bullshit we all need a little bob more bob mackie in our life i think but it's an it's another example of optimism it's like she describes it like some little boy walked into the room and we said hello little boy are you here looking for a job it turned out he was 22 and bob mackie and you're like (laughs) what when you were 22 was someone like i'm gonna give you a job costuming a major television show it's, it's like pretty incredible. And he ends up being this amazing person that we all know. But like in part that had to, he started there. He started because yeah. somebody gave him a shot, you know? Yeah, it's like Carol was given a shot and she turned around and gave it to others. Like the guy is like, promise you're going to help others, which I feel like is the most beautiful, like the, it's the pay it forward concept. And, uh, and she really does it. Yeah. Totally. yeah. Uh, you guys... Thank you so much for coming on. It's so good to catch up with you. You guys, uh, tell everyone where they can follow you, where they can find you, where they can support your work, all of it. We've just set up a joint Instagram account. So come on over to at RothrockWeir. I love this. And you'll find all our stuff there. Yeah. You guys have been together a while, but like now was the social media joint account. I, I love know. It. It, felt, yeah. it felt young and cool. Yeah. Are we, are we hip yet? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's all for this week's episode. If you love this podcast, if you want more of this podcast, go join us on Patreon. If you become a Patreon member, you get one bonus episode every month. 
You get an email every episode of photos that go with the episode. You get a newsletter of all the best DMs that I get that month where we like learn and recap things. You also get access to our lounge, which is a cookies only chat lounge where we chat about episodes and all kinds of things. There's also other tiers. So you can join for just a dollar a month or $5 a month. And then for higher level tiers, we do a live book club on Zoom once a month where we listen to the episode of the podcast and discuss that episode. So no reading required. That's patreon.com slash Chelsea DeMontez. And that is where we love your support. And that's also where the community is. A huge thank you to our producer, Kate Downey, our episode engineer, DJ Bouncy House, assistant, Jaron Padre, and our executive producer, Jordan Marcotta. Our team does so much to make this podcast happen, and I just thank them endlessly. Also, a big thank you to our product partners at Tenteo, Natalie's Juice, and Pattern Brands. They have given us and our guests so many great products. We are going to link each brand in the show notes, and you can find all of the products that I love on my Instagram highlights, where I am always on Instagram, at Chelsea Devantes. And I'll see you there for another episode soon.